From Truth, Politics, and Power, I'm Neil Conan. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson with The Democracy Test. Checks and Balances. The Constitution pits the three branches of government against each other so that none can get too powerful. But commentator and professor of government E.J. Dion says what we're seeing now is something different. Since Trump's election is a Republican Party that has largely decided that the Congress, rather than being a check on the president, is choosing to support him. We'll also explore the erosion of the informal, unwritten rules that can lubricate the machinery of government and ask about lessons learned from the most famous moment when checks and balances did work in Watergate. It's the democracy test, right after this. From Truth, Politics, and Power, I'm Neil Conan. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson with The Democracy Test. One of the great innovations of the American Constitution is its system of checks and balances. Each branch of government can apply a break on the others. In particular, Congress and the courts are supposed to check the power of the president. But the presidency has gathered more and more power over the last 70 years, and we now have a president who attacks Congress and the judiciary when it suits him and mounts almost daily assaults on other institutions that can hold him to account, the media and the career professionals in federal agencies like the FBI and the Justice Department. Later this hour, we'll hear about the erosion of the informal, unwritten rules that can lubricate the machinery of government. They're often called norms. And we'll look to the lessons of Watergate, where checks and balances worked. But we begin with the formal set of checks and balances written into the Constitution. E.J. Dion is a well-known commentator and columnist for The Washington Post. He's also a senior fellow in governance at the Brookings Institution, a government professor at Georgetown, and a visiting professor at Harvard. His most recent book is One Nation Under Trump, which he wrote with Thomas Mann and Norm Ornstein. He joins us from Cambridge. E.J., we're looking at the workings of democracy in this series, and central to that are checks and balances in the U.S. government. I think you've described it as the genius of the constitutional system. How are they supposed to be working? Well, when the founders put together the Constitution, they did not assume the existence of political parties. Uh, That's odd in a way because the Constitution itself created what you might call the first party system, Federalists and Anti-Federalists, but they did not assume that the branches would be affected by party loyalty. I think what you're seeing in this period since Trump's election is a Republican Party that has largely decided not to play its traditional role in Congress, that the Congress, rather than being a check on the president, is choosing to support him uh, in the courts, particularly the lower courts. We're going to see if the Supreme Court proves to be a check. There are reasons to doubt that. The biggest check we do have is not uh, so much in the Constitution, although it's part of the Constitution. It's in the larger acceptance of small-D democratic values in the country. So the checks are outside the government, both in political mobilization, which is happening in a big way in the country, and also in a free media, which is doing a lot of the investigating that Congress isn't doing. I think one of the things we forget when we sort of go back to the Watergate period is that in Watergate, you had all of the institutions working in tandem to hold the president accountable. The courts played a critical role in this. Congressional investigations played a critical role in this. Remember that the Congress was controlled by Democrats, and obviously the media played a critical role. Now you are missing important pieces in that system of checks and balances, and I think we uh, so far see the outcome. Let's look at how we got here, E.J., When people look at the Supreme Court today, for example, they tend to look at President Trump's judicial appointments, which have moved the court to the right. And yet this is really nothing new. This process started all the way back in the Reagan administration when Reagan's attorney general, Edwin Meese, very famously said the idea was to institutionalize the Reagan revolution so it can't be set aside no matter what happens in future presidential elections. The plan was simply to cement a conservative majority in the courts so it didn't matter what voters did. And there's been surprisingly little pushback on that over the years. Are we really seeing anything that's in any way new? Uh, Yes, and in some ways it goes back even before 
uh, Ed Meese and Reagan to the 1960s. The real attack on the court began in the early 60s with those impeach Earl Warren uh, billboards that you had around the country supported by the John Birch Society and others. You can argue it goes back to Brown v. Board and then a series of progressive decisions the court made around one man, one vote, the end of uh, prescribed prayer in public schools, and a whole series of democratizing you know, progressive decisions the court made. So the conservatives set out to take back control of the court. And this has been cyclical in our history that the court that Franklin D. Roosevelt confronted in the 1930s was a very conservative court, the product largely of appointments by Warren Harding and Herbert Hoover, which is why we had the court packing fight uh, in the 1930s. Conservatives have been determined in a very disciplined way to take over the court. And I think that the sort of most extreme expression of that, which a lot of people have talked about, is the decision not even to take up the nomination of Merrick Garland uh, by President Obama, which held a seat open for more than a year because Mitch McConnell and others on the right felt that if we can only win the next election, we can grab this majority. And I think we're going to see over the coming years a crisis that is not unlike the one that led to the court packing fight in the 1930s. Just to remind people, Franklin Roosevelt tried to expand the court from nine members to 15 and failed despite large Democratic majorities in Congress, which suggested that at least in that case, Congress did work as a check against the president. Oh, no, that's that's very important. And what you had in that period were a couple of things happening simultaneously. One, it was the 1930s. Americans were looking across the ocean to Europe. They saw Hitler. They saw Mussolini. And so there was a uh, healthy mistrust of presidential power. But you also saw in that period the beginning of the conservative uh, Democrat-Republican alliance in the Congress where even though Democrats had nominal control, they didn't always have effective control. Those two forces came together to kill court packing. On the other hand, what's fascinating is the court itself realized that if it made a series of decisions that seemed so political to knock out virtually all of the New Deal, its own long-term legitimacy would be at stake. So some justices started swinging the other way. One justice in particular swung in an important case, and in our history, uh, it became known as a switch in time saves nine, uh, <laughs> meaning that the court kind of giving in a bit to the New Deal prevented a big uh, crisis, and then Roosevelt got some more appointments to the court, and the controversy dissipated. I'd like to get back to the courts in a bit, but you've just raised the question of Congress. How did Congress get to the point where it seems to be we are right now, that it is unwilling to provide an effective check on President Trump? For the most part, Republicans in Congress have decided that, A, there is much to be gained from their point of view from a Trump presidency, beginning obviously with court appointments, moving on to the tax, the, the big tax cut, and then also all of the deregulatory measures that Trump is undertaking that Republicans in Congress have long supported. So for policy reasons, they are reluctant to undermine or go after or hold accountable President Trump. On the other side, there is the makeup of the Republican Party that over the last uh, 30 or 40 years, the Republican Party has become a much more monolithically conservative party. And since the rise of uh, President Trump, they've also become a much more monolithically Trumpian party. Uh, if you look at his ongoing approval rating among Republicans, this not only reflects his broad popularity among Republicans, but the people choosing to stay in the party are more pro-Trump. And some of the people uh, who might oppose him have are leaving the party. What this means is a lot of members of Congress look not to a general election where they might lose, but to a primary where they might lose to a pro-Trump candidate if they stand up to him. Mark Sanford, the congressman from South Carolina, very, very conservative, lost a primary because he was seen as anti-Trump. A lot of Republicans have taken a lesson from that. And I think, for example, 
another South Carolinian who was very close to uh, Mark Sanford, Lindsey Graham, who began as a sharp critic of Donald Trump, uh, has moved into being one of his strongest supporters. A lot of people in South Carolina and out have said Lindsey Graham understood where the balance of power lay in the party, and he decided that he wanted to survive. And survival right now in the Republican Party means supporting President Trump. But the increasingly strong executive is nothing new. It's been going on since FDR, hasn't it? We have the two parties becoming more ideologically coherent, beginning in the 1960s with the flight of many Southern conservative white Democrats to the Republican Party and the ideological purification, if you will, I don't like that word, but that is what it is of each party, really was nearly completed in the 1994 midterm elections where many, many uh, moderate to conservative Democrats in the South were defeated and many of the more moderate and in some cases liberal Republicans in the North began to lose their seats afterward. Just to pick one example, Connie Morella was a very progressive Republican from the suburbs of Washington, D.C., very well loved in her district, but the, the Democratic voters who had elected her to that point said, we don't want to support this Republican majority anymore. And she was defeated by Chris Van Hollen. The point being that each party is more ideologically coherent. There are a lot of ironies here. Back in the 1950s, political scientists said, gee, our parties really don't work well because they are not ideologically coherent and we need more ideologically coherent parties. Well, now we have them and we're not fully happy with that outcome either. But that coherence is part of what drives the current polarization. I think there's one other factor, which is that virtually every election is contested. In every election, each party that's out has a chance of regaining uh, the majority. Uh, We went through a very long period from 1954 until 1994 where the Republicans really never had a good shot at taking over the House of Representatives. Now, with every election being competitive, the entire period of a Congress becomes part of the campaign coming forward. That's not the fault of either party. It's that each party behaves in a way that it sees as functional for the next election. But that operates against bipartisanship, obviously. What I'm trying to untangle here is whether we're in the moment that we're in because of the movement of the Republican Party to the right, or whether there is something in our lack of checks and balances right now that we need to address. That is, there's a problem in either case. But the solutions are going to be very different. Well, I do, um, you know, and this may reflect my point of view, although I would argue it also reflects the data. Uh, I wrote a book called Why the Right Went Wrong because I felt that the Republican Party really had moved uh, much farther to the right than the Democrats had moved left and that this was creating a problem in the political system. And we could talk at great length about asymmetric polarization. I just think that's a reality in the system, which means that uh, I would like to see a revival of more moderate brands of republicanism. And I see some small hope for that, by the way, in the movement of anti-Trump conservatives. It's going to be very interesting to see where today's anti-Trump conservatives end up five or 10 years from now. I see them in a funny way as comparable to the neoconservatives of the 1960s who were disillusioned liberals who moved right. I think you're seeing uh, with the anti-Trump conservative disillusioned conservatives who are moving to the center and in some cases over to the center left. The other part of it, to the extent that it is a larger problem, I'm not sure it's in our governing institutions as such. It may be in part in the media, in a media system where there is less of a common narrative that people broadly share and then argue within it. Now, there are not only sort of narratives, but facts themselves that are contested across political lines. And, you know, there is some evidence that search algorithms push us into our own a little camps. Now that can be exaggerated, but I do think that the nature of our conversation now is different. And I don't want to romanticize 
the past, you can argue that online media have opened up the political system to all kinds of points of view and that in the old system, there might have been too much elite control. I can see that argument. But I think the lack of any kind of common agreement on a set of facts makes political argument much more difficult because if you at least you agree on facts, you can argue about what to do about them. If you don't agree on facts anymore, then there's almost no way to carry on a coherent argument. And I worry that that's the direction we're going in. EJ, it seems to me you're describing a system where certainly the Republican Party and increasingly both parties are interested more in partisan advantage and ideological purity, as you describe it. How do we get back to a system where there are, at least in crises, more interested in the national interest? You know, there's one interesting case, and it's a very controversial one, where partisanship did disappear for a moment of crisis, and that was the bank bailout back in 2008. And the irony there is the bank bailout was called for by President Bush, a Republican. The bulk of the votes for the bailout came from Democrats in Congress. They didn't much like it either, but there was a feeling that in the middle of this crisis when the entire economy could collapse, if this didn't happen, no matter what injustices might be involved in the bank bailout, the damage to everyone would have been worse. So we at least have some occasions when we come together. We also came together in a remarkable way, obviously, after 9-11, when President Bush's approval rating rose to the 80s or 90s. Some argued that that strong consensus actually became a problem because we inadequately debated the Iraq war afterward. I would note that in both of those cases, it was largely Democrats who went over to the other side and said, all right, we're going to support Bush even though we didn't like this. And after 9-11, there was a decision made that we wanted to unite behind our president, who many Democrats disagreed with. I'd like to think there would be circumstances like that when Republicans would do that for a Democratic president. I just haven't seen that in recent years. I'd like to believe that it's true. The one clear example on the other side is when um, Syria crossed President Obama's red line the beginning of a second term in using chemical weapons. It is true that John Boehner, the speaker, and Eric Cantor, the number two Republican, supported President Obama, but there was so much opposition in the Republican Party and as well as the Democratic Party that there was no agreement reached. So we have at least seen some occasions when a national threat brought people together. I hope we will see a clear example of that on the Republican side someday. And this period, those have been very hard to find, I am very sorry to say. We've talked about the checks and balances of the different branches of government on themselves. But, E.J., you in the past have talked about the fourth and most important check on the political system, and that's the check of the voters. You've talked a lot about the role of voters in making sure that they have control over their government, and you have some interesting ideas about how we can make that happen. Right. Well, I am for an idea that's going to take a long time, if ever, to take hold, which is what I call universal voting and what is in Australia called compulsory attendance at the polls, where I think that there should be an obligation on all of us to vote. How it works in Australia is people pay a very small fine if they don't vote. It's not onerous, but it's a declaration that this is a civic duty no less than serving on a jury is a civic duty. One of the reasons I like this idea is that it suddenly changes the obligations of state and local governments. They would have to stop making it more difficult to vote and begin to make it easier for people to do their civic duty. So that's one thought I have. A second thought I have is, and, and a lot of other people have obviously, is some kind of single transferable vote system where one of the problems in our system is if in a given election you are inclined to vote for a third party candidate, the very likely outcome of that vote, or one very likely outcome of that vote, is you help elect the candidate you least like among the two party candidates. It discourages third party voting, obviously, but it also can create non-majoritarian outcomes with the transferable vote. You put a number one next to your first choice, which might be a third party candidate, but then you can put a number two next to, say, to the candidate from one or the other parties that is closest to your view. 
that guarantees that the winner, in some sense, reflects a majority view, but it also creates gives creates some give in the political system. I am not anti-party myself. I don't see how you organize a democratic system without parties. And I think we're barking up the wrong tree if we uh, say all our problems are caused by political parties, if only they would go away. If this party system went away, it would be replaced by another party uh, system because people come together to with people who are more or less their allies to try to influence government. That's democracy. But there are moments when the system needs some lubrication, some adjustments, um, you know, and two of the ideas that I am sympathetic to the transferable vote and uh, universal voting, I think, could strengthen our small-D democratic system. That idea of universal suffrage, the idea that the government must guarantee that everybody votes as opposed to members of different political parties trying to make sure that their opponents don't vote, seems to me to be a really interesting and very effective way to make sure that that final check and balance on the government, that of voters, actually works. Right. And one of the reasons um, I think universal voting might gain some support over time, although I know it's a long shot, is that it does two things, one amenable to progressives and one amenable to more middle-of-the-road people. On the one hand, it would increase the turnout of young people, of lower-income people, who are often the folks most kept away by various measures to make it harder to vote. On the other hand, it would also make our system somewhat less ideological because many of the voters who stay away from elections are people with less hard, hardened ideological views. And so the combination of those two could be, I think, salutary to the political debate. I mean, I am unapologetically a person of the center-left. I I'm very clear about my own views, but I actually think it would be useful for both sides to have to make a case to voters who don't necessarily share uh, their particular uh, uh, ideology. That That is has been the effect down in Australia where the system has worked very well. And I like to say we got the secret ballot from Australia, so why don't we import this idea too? Thanks for being with us today, EJ. This has been a wonderful look at America's checks and balances and at why sometimes they don't work and at how we can maybe get back to a place where they work better than they seem to be working today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. It's great to be with you. Thank you. EJ Dion, who teaches government at Harvard and Georgetown. He's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a columnist for The Washington Post. You can find out more about this program at our website, which is truthpoliticsandpower.org. While you're there, you can listen to all the shows in our archives, including previous episodes of The Democracy Test. That's truthpoliticsandpower.org. Coming up, the hidden heroes of Watergate. Stay with us. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Neil Cohen. It's The Democracy Test from Truth, Politics, and Power and APM, American Public Media. It's The Democracy Test. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Neil Conan. The checks and balances built into our Constitution restrain the power of the president. Though they created a chief executive, the framers took care to make sure the president was not a king. Some of those restraints are written into law, but many others are not. For 150 years, for example, there was an informal agreement that no president would serve more than two terms. The precedent was established by George Washington and observed by every one of his successors until Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Two years after FDR's death in office, Congress passed a congressional amendment to put what was once an informal bipartisan agreement into stone. In 2012, political scientists Julia Azari and Jennifer Smith published a groundbreaking paper on political norms and the democratic values they represent. A paper referred to again and again after the election of Donald Trump, who repeatedly violated the norms during his campaign and has kept his promise to disrupt the established rules of government as president. Julia Azari is an associate professor at Marquette University and a contributor to 538. She joins us from the studios of Milwaukee Public Radio, WUWM. Welcome to the Democracy Test. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Julia, political norms can be extremely important. There's no law that prevents a president from using the Department of Justice and the FBI as a political weapon. President Trump has tried to do that, but at least so far he's been restrained. Doesn't that suggest that at least some norms are very powerful? Yeah, I think that that's right. But I think it's important to distinguish 
as I noted in a 538 piece I wrote last spring, there's norms, which are the practices and the informal sanctioning and shaming for violating accepted practices, and then the values behind them are actually what people are usually talking about when they're talking about norms and our contemporary context. Some norms are obviously more important than others. You say some speak to core democratic values, while others might be categorized as courtesies. Uh, Isn't it a good idea, though, to shake things up from time to time? I think it is a good idea to shake things up from time to time. And I've, I've been writing about this, too, a little bit, about the kind of darker side of norms, along with a number of other political scientists and historians, that a lot of norms of civility, norms of bipartisanship, that these norms allowed things to get done, but also allowed segregation to persist, allowed slavery to persist, and have really been at the heart of a lot of racial injustice and injustice to women, various other marginalized groups. So I think it is good to shake things up in a way that upholds democratic values. And debating what those values are is kind of where we circle back to the question of what democracy is. You observe, for example, that the civil rights movement disrupted a lot of norms. Absolutely. That's um, a pretty central one. That's not how I would file that if I were kind of creating a master you know, filing cabinet of different events <laughs> in American history. I wouldn't file it under disrupted norms. But certainly it was disrupting a kind of politeness, right? Disrupting the status quo. Well, and that's one of the arguments behind civility. When people say, well, you're being uncivil when you challenge a decision or you challenge some kind of uh, something that Congress is doing or the president is doing. And one of your points is that civility is often a cover for Uh, misogyny or for racism, right? Yeah, absolutely. Or if if not a cover for it, a way of excusing it, right, or a way of getting out of having to have a difficult debate about it. And that's one of the things I think is really particularly complex about looking back, as we often do on this period of kind of like the 40s and the 50s, um, and then up into the 60s, back when people just went and had a drink together, they had friendships across the aisle, Well, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but those friendships were all pretty much among white men, and there weren't a lot of people involved in those, you know, in those smoke-filled rooms who didn't fit a certain profile. So, yes, there's, there's something to be said for finding commonality and for working with people instead of insulting them, but there is a certain level at which, you know, you're doing that and being polite and by keeping some of these issues off the table, not allowing important debates to be had that advance democracy for all Americans and for all people. Well, and that's a great way to put it, that those things are off the table. It's not necessarily even that they're avoiding them. They just don't even see that they're there necessarily, right? I think that's right. And I kind of came to this idea a little bit late, having come into political science, reading a lot of this mainstream thought. You know, I was in graduate school during the George W. Bush years, and people were just, at least on my radar, kind of starting to talk about serious dysfunction in in Congress, that's an old topic, right? But this sort of really polarized, hyper-polarized Congress became a big topic of scholarly conversation. And I bought into that for a while. And then I started thinking as I was researching my book in the 60s and 70s are this big turning point of polarization in my book and in a lot of books, and thinking, well, why did that happen? And you realize that happened because people started pushing the ERA, the, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment for Women, it happened because of civil rights, it happened because of voting rights, and there are other reasons. You know, it happened because of cultural issues that came onto the national agenda, but it happened because all of these things ripped open social fabric in ways that I think needed to happen. Okay, so separation of powers is written into our Constitution, but what you're suggesting is that the norms are that you don't trip over those and try to put influence on the media, for example, or undue influence on a congressional leader? Yeah, absolutely. These are not new fights. You know, this is the founding of the Republic. About as soon as that happened, people started having these fights. And, you know, even as early, for example, it's James K. Polk and the Mexican War, right? He asked Congress for a declaration of war. There's nothing in the Constitution that says he can't do that. But then there is this pushback from Congress about encroaching on their powers. That kind of particular fight is not new. I think what observers think is new about it is the perception that Congress isn't pushing back. So in that sense, in some ways, it's actually congressional Republicans who are violating the norms, not so much the administration. And I'm not necessarily 
saying I think that view is totally correct. I just think that's the that's a strong strain of discourse that we, we've certainly seen in the last couple of weeks. The way I think about it, for sure, after studying Congress all these years. But let's go on to another category, just so we figure out what norms are. So your second category is political conflict. And that is the idea that the president or leaders are not supposed to threaten to put their opponents in jail, that some sort of opposition to the leadership is part of a democratic society, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important democratic value, respecting the results of an election, for the loser to consent, for the winner to exercise restraint. These are things like when people are thinking about writing a new constitution for a new democracy, for an authoritarian government that's fallen or in the process of transitioning out. These are the things that they think about and that political scientists who study developing democracies think about. And I don't know that people, certainly in mainstream, the mainstream study of American politics in political science, we don't talk a lot about it. It's like that's, you know, that was the election of 1800. And since then, we've generally accepted that it's okay to be an opposition party. Yeah. And there, again, there's a kind of striking example of this is that the election of 1864 happened, right? Right. 40, 44% of the country mm-hmm. voted for Lincoln's opponent, for George McClellan. There are people that are concerned that, you know, that the formal election process will go away. I don't know what's going to happen. I got out of the prediction business in 2016. <laughs> I think the formal election process is unlikely to go away, but the president routinely uses rhetoric that delegitimizes the other side. I mean, he's been doing this on Twitter all day. There is a lawsuit working its way through the courts uh, based on the emoluments clause of the Constitution that the president can't accept gifts from foreign governments. But for the most part, these norms aren't laws. And if no laws are broken, what's the problem? One way to think about that is, okay, what is the problem? I would respond with a couple of things there. So first of all, I think that the idea that democracy will function without any informal practices or without any kind of value, you know, halo cushioning the the way that formal (laughs) institutions work is not totally realistic. The recent book, How Democracies Die, by Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, takes that into account and talks quite a bit about about norms and kind of about conduct of people in power. I think they refer to norms as the the guardrails of a democracy. Yeah, exactly. The guardrails, which we now, everyone... Uh, who read my piece knows I'm very skeptical about guardrails in some ways. But I'm just saying this is a kind of mainstream way to think about that. And that's really kind of what what Jenny and I were trying to get in our paper, too, is that informal norms and informal rules exist to supplement where people couldn't agree on a formal rule. They exist alongside, they exist to coordinate complex systems of formal rules that aren't all compatible. So I think it's not realistic to say we're only ever going to be governed by the kind of letter of the law. There are always routine practices that encapsulate and carry values that people hold. Well, I want to go back to something Neil said, and that it seems to me we ought to pick up and not leave hanging. And that's that, isn't there a good reason that a president shouldn't be able to accept gifts from foreign governments, even if there are ways to wiggle around the actual emoluments clause of the Constitution? Yeah, I mean, I think that most people would agree with that. I admit that this is not an issue that I've pondered a lot as an ethicist. I think, you know, my knee-jerk response is, of course, my knee-jerk response is that there need to be, you know, national sovereignty is how we do things, and also that gifts are problematic for public officials. Those are values I'm familiar with that are at the top of my head. I think what you get to there is a really important point about a kind of technicality, right? We don't really want our president's skating under technicalities about how they use their power. Yet, that's not that uncommon, right? Presidents push at the boundaries of their power all the time. Courts make rulings that either limit that often that doesn't, right, that suggests that the broad category of what executive power is encompasses all sorts of different practices. You know, we saw a lot of that with George W. Bush and the war on terror. It's not like that's new, but I think it is new as it concerns presidential conduct much of the time, that we don't think of that as being related to legal technicalities in that way. 
Well, and that goes back to what you were saying earlier about Congress sort of dropping the ball, pushing back on the president. The whole concept was the three branches of government would be very concerned about their own power, and so they would constantly push back against each other. So when any one of them gets weak or starts to work for the others, we're kind of in trouble. Right. I think that's right. And as you, you know, as we think about other instances where presidential conduct has been a problem, thinking about Bill Clinton, thinking about Richard Nixon, in both of those instances, there was divided government and Congress pushed back in ways, you know, for Clinton, it didn't end his presidency. But I think, you know, in some ways he sort of got the message that there were people that didn't approve of how he had conducted himself. And obviously for Nixon and, and ultimately ended his his presidency, whether that kind of check can occur under unified government, I think is still a little bit of an open question. By unified government, you mean when one party controls uh, the White House and both branches of Congress? Correct. When one party controls all of it, which you know may not be the situation for that much longer. So we shall see. I want to go to something else you've talked about, and that's that you've compared politics today to the political system we had in 1896. And you have a really interesting take on it. So why don't you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, so that piece came out in July of 2016. And we wrote that piece thinking about the rise of populism, thinking about the concept of um, of a new Gilded Age, and thinking about very, you know, very close and very vocal party competition. Those were the things that we were really thinking about there in terms of parallels, just trying to flesh out the idea of, is there really anything that has happened before? One thing I would say about that piece is I kind of think back on it is, did a lot of the conceptualization of that paper in 2015 and early 2016. So I kind of cringe to think about how it does or doesn't apply after the election. Well, okay. So what I was going for there was that you argue in it that in the 1890s, as well as in the present, you have parties that are very evenly matched at the ballot box. They appear to many voters to look pretty much the same, and they are incredibly vitriolic. And what you suggested about that period is that in the 1890s, is that that was a precursor to an entirely different party system. And I'm wondering if you would say the same today in 2018, looking at where the parties are and those particular parallels. I've thought a lot about this and a lot about the possibilities for change in ways that are not, I don't, I don't know that they're totally reflected in, in that piece. And there are two things that I keep coming back to. One is that our current situation is a recipe for very stale and stagnant parties. It's very difficult for the parties to change. Negative partisanship makes the system very resistant to third parties. And I know that's not normally what you hear from political scientists, right? Political scientists will tell you that having an electoral college and single-member congressional districts, majoritarian, majority rule makes it, that's why we don't have third party. But third parties bubble up periodically in American history and they take up 10%, 20% of the vote in a presidential election, and they kind of change the agenda, right? They don't win office, but they, they change the agenda and they channel new ideas. And that really, I think, strikingly hasn't really happened in the 21st century. And I think one reason for that is that negative partisanship makes people terrified to cross the aisle. It means that elites don't bolt their parties at the same rate that they used to, to to start new ones. You know, that may be good or bad in various ways, but I think it makes the party system very stagnant. And you don't see the same possibilities for change that you did through the 1890s and then the early part of the the 20th century. You know, you had different factions in, in both parties that were kind of pushing back against the established institutional structures, pushing back against the shape of the Gilded Age political economy, Things like that. Um, that's, you know, kind of what I see in terms of the possibilities for change. The other thing I think is that in political science, we've maybe moved away from some of the theories that would explain how we get out of these periods of close competition and vitriol and stagnation. We used to call them realignments. We used to say, all right, that a new majority formed around new issues and there was this election in which that happened. Realignment theory has kind of fallen out of favor in political science, in part because when you do scrutinize those election patterns, a lot of those claims start to crumble. But we haven't replaced it with anything in terms of a big kind of idea about how we get out of those periods. So how you get from 
1896 to 1932, for example. We've referred several times in this uh, conversation to your colleague, Jennifer Smith. Uh, She died this past August, much too young. We're sorry for your loss and ours. Thank you. Julia Azari, thank you for being with us. Julia Azari teaches political science at Marquette University, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much. The one moment in American history that may best embody the principle of checks and balances is Watergate. A free press, the courts, and Congress all acted to bring down a president who transformed the White House into a criminal conspiracy. Beverly Gage has another theory. Yes, the Washington Post, Judge John Sirica, and Senator Sam Irvin all played important parts, but she believes that the standard Watergate narrative overlooks another key player— the federal bureaucracy, specifically the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Beverly Gage teaches 20th century American political history at Yale, and she's the author of the new book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover in the American Century. She joins us from New Haven. Welcome to the Democracy Test. Thanks for having me. Well, Beverly, it's easy to think of J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Nixon as political allies, comrades in anti-communist fervor. But you argue that they were, in fact, in deep conflict. They were both at the same time. So they had, in fact, spent, by the time Nixon became president, spent a lifetime, or at least since the late 40s, in a pretty close friendship and political alliance uh, that was built, as you say, around anti-communism and also around a kind of shared outlook about Washington. So they liked each other quite a lot. Um, They conspired together about all sorts of things, including, you know, Hoover really supported Nixon being elected in 1968, though he did it quietly. Uh, But once Nixon became president, they came into conflict pretty quickly. Uh, One of the things Nixon really wanted to do when he came to office was what he called politicize the bureaucracy. Uh, He felt that all sorts of federal civil servants were not nearly as responsive to the president as he would like them to be. They didn't serve his political purposes, and he really wanted to do that. Um, Unfortunately, J. Edgar Hoover wanted no such thing. And he was a pretty powerful man at that point, And that brought them into some serious conflict. Well, Hoover himself died just before the Watergate break-in, right? He did. So Hoover died in May of 1972, and the Watergate break-in happened in June of 1972. Already before that, the FBI had had some pretty serious showdowns with the Nixon White House over some of the the elements that ultimately led to Watergate. So, for instance, Nixon really wanted the FBI to be doing some of his political investigating of Daniel Ellsberg, for instance. Hoover thought that was a very dangerous thing for the FBI to be doing. He refused to do some of what Nixon wanted, and that's actually why Nixon created his, uh, his famous unit known as the Plumber the plumbers to stop leaks, right? But even though Hoover was dead, the institution he created and had run for half a century remained behind. And you have focused on a man who spent 30 years steeped in the culture of Hoover's FBI, a man named Mark Felt, who most people know as Deep Throat, the man who was Bob Woodward's invaluable source in unraveling what had happened with Watergate. So why did a really kind of button-down G-man like Mark Felt turn on President Nixon. One of the, I think, key and unrecognized parts of the Watergate story is that it happened in the midst of a really big battle over the succession crisis at the FBI. So when Hoover died in May of 1972, he had been there for 48 years (laughs) as head of the FBI. And that meant that there were many, many figures in the FBI who had been kind of waiting around for Hoover either to retire or to die so that they could take over. And these were men who had been trained by Hoover, who had spent decades in the FBI really being trained in Hoover's way of doing those things. And one of those people was Mark Felt. Uh, So one of the critical pieces of the sort of background uh, once the Watergate burglary happens is that Nixon had just appointed an outsider to run the FBI, a man named L. Patrick Gray, who had no ties to the 
old institutional FBI who people saw as kind of a political flunky of Nixon's and who the FBI guys understood Nixon had sent in um, to kind of make them do the White House bidding. So someone like Mark Felt is both angry because he hasn't been appointed head of the FBI and certainly was one of the key candidates for it, um, and then is also concerned and pretty resentful about what the Nixon White House seems to want uh, the FBI to do and how the Nixon White House seems to want the FBI to behave. So he's really protecting the FBI. He understands himself to be, in some sense at least, a protector of the FBI and the FBI's kind of institutional autonomy from the White House, something that's a very big issue at the moment. Um, the FBI has always been a funny institution because it has its own political culture. Under Hoover, it was certainly a very conservative political culture, but it also has this very powerful sense of its own autonomy, of its own role as professional investigators, professional bipartisan or really nonpartisan civil servants who don't want to be pushed around by politicians and who really understand themselves to be acting outside of political pressures, um, really acting on behalf of the public good. And so Mark felt, uh, really felt that what the White House uh, was pressuring the FBI to do was inappropriate and would, uh, I think, in some sense, you know, destroy or at least damage the institution in which he'd come of age. Isn't it interesting that one institution acting as a check on the president, the FBI, needed another institution, the press, or at least turned to the press, in order to be effective? That's right. One of the pieces that the FBI discovers in that moment, or at least a figure like Mark Felt found, was that uh, the pressure was going to have to come maybe from outside, from a different direction. Now, this is also something that Hoover had taught many of his top officials. Hoover was a kind of expert leaker. And I think one of the things people don't understand so much about Hoover was how good he was at getting uh, public sentiment on his side, at kind of building political alliances, at mobilizing the press to do what he wanted to do so that he could kind of stand back and A, probably not admit that he was doing a lot of those things, but B, um, say, you know, I'm just the nonpartisan civil servant, <laughs> um, having handed it all over to uh, other, other pressure groups. Is it fair to call him the most successful bureaucrat in American history? I think that's absolutely fair. When you look at uh, his record, uh, the time he spent in office, he remained through Republican presidents, through Democratic presidents, through any number of attorneys general. Um, and he really built an entire institution, an entire wing of the federal bureaucracy in his own image uh, and in his own mindset. Now, there are obvious parallels when we have a president who attacks the FBI and the Justice Department almost daily. Uh, at times, Donald Trump has also attacked the CIA, indeed, the, the entire federal bureaucracy, which he calls the deep state. Uh, do your ideas about the FBI and Watergate suggest that he's got a point? Well, I would say we're definitely seeing a playing out of some of the tensions that we saw in, in the 70s. So the FBI has always been in this very funny and strange position because it's part of the executive branch, and yet it's often called upon, in fact, to investigate the executive branch and sometimes to investigate the president. Uh, and so it's a kind of funny hybrid institution where it's inside and outside of the executive, where it is both supposed to be doing what the president wants it to do, and then also investigating the president when called upon to do so. So we are absolutely seeing some of those tensions play out. I think you can see some of the FBI's defensiveness when it's brought too much into politics and into partisan politics, um, and its own interest really in protecting its own integrity as an institution, because right? whether or not Donald Trump likes them, Donald Trump, in fact, at least we assume, is going to come and go, um, and the FBI is still going to be there. And so I think you've seen a lot of these decisions with that, uh, that kind of longer set of institutional interests in place. Well, do you put Robert Mueller in the tradition of Hoover's FBI then? Well, I think FBI directors today tend to view Hoover as a kind of cautionary tale <laughs> and less as a model in most ways. Uh, James Comey, when he was in office, famously kept 
the wiretap order that Robert Kennedy had signed on Martin Luther King, he kept that on his desk as a kind of cautionary reminder of the kinds of abuses of power that an institution like the FBI can uh, can have when it's too sure of its own sense of righteousness, when it's not paying attention to the limits of, of law. But of course, that's a complicated story too. But I do think that both Mueller, to some degree Comey as well, understood themselves to be protectors at least of part of Hoover's legacy, which was this sense of the FBI as a highly professional uh, institution that just wasn't going to be pushed around by politicians. Well, you have set up the idea of bureaucracies, independent bureaucracies, non-political bureaucracies being able to be a check on the executive branch. Is it a problem for us that President Trump has so deliberately left so many empty offices at the State Department, for example, and in embassies and in many of the positions of the bureaucracies that previously had been full and created their own sort of buffer, if you will, between the executive branch and the American people. Is it a problem that so many of those are sitting empty or have been filled by political appointees who are loyal to the president as opposed to that independent bureaucracy? I think that's going to be one of the really long-term consequences of the Trump presidency, um, that these institutions, which probably in many cases could have used some shaking up, um, what was there before wasn't necessarily the perfect thing, but the fact that they have, uh, as you say, been allowed to kind of lay fallow, uh, positions are empty, but also that the role of experts, um, of diplomats, of professional intelligence officers, really the whole idea of kind of independent professional expertise within the government seems to be under pretty serious challenge at the moment. And so I think we're going to see some pretty significant effects from that, both in terms of what the actual agencies or institutions can do, and then also in terms of, you know, how the public thinks about that and whether or not serious people want to go into those jobs. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Beverly Gage's book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the American Century. She's professor of history at Yale, where she teaches 20th century American political history. Next time, join us for our final episode what we've learned about the resilience of democracy in general, and American democracy in particular, and the special problem when truth itself is challenged. That's next time on The Democracy Test. The executive producer of Truth, Politics, and Power is Sue Goodwin. Our managing producer is Arjun Hutchins, and our digital manager is Jan Andrews. Our music was written and performed by the Red Water Trio. Our donors include Jerry Azaro, Susan Murphy Jaffe, and Randy Schneider. They all use the donate button at our website, which is truthpoliticsandpower.org. If you visit, you can learn more about this program and listen to all the shows in our archive, including previous episodes of The Democracy Test. That's truthpoliticsandpower.org. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Neil Cohn. The Democracy Test is produced by Kohala Mountain Radio and distributed by APM, American Public Media.